All right, that, the, what, the text we're looking at briefly this morning, we've already read, Isaiah 9. One of the most famous prophecies in the Old Testament of the coming of Jesus, of the birth of Christ. Uh, and it reminds us here that Jesus is not a Savior that we want, at least at first. Jesus is not a Savior that we want initially. He is a Savior that we need. And then we say, oh, he's the one I want. We don't always get what we want, right? We know that. And with all due deference to my wife, I have to confess that, that Diana Williamson, Diana Williamson is the name of the woman I wanted to marry when I was five years old. I wanted to marry my neighbor, Diana, and it didn't work out. It's okay because by the time I was eight, I really wanted to marry Lori Luthane. I'm sure Lori's a great woman today. I don't really know, but I really wanted to marry her in third grade. Didn't work out. I'm sure I was heartbroken. I don't know if she was. I was always the person that got dumped. I don't know if you were in that boat, but uh, let's see. By seventh grade, it was a girl named Amy. Eighth grade, maybe. And I was certain I was going to marry her. And you have to understand, the town I come from, being 14 and getting married is not, you know, not impossible, not look to, you know. <laughs> it didn't work. I know I was heartbroken on that one. I didn't get what I wanted. By 16, it was another girl. By 19, it wasn't. And that's an age like, okay, this might really happen. And I was almost certain that I was going to marry this other girl, and I didn't get what I wanted and was heartbroken again. Sometimes you don't get what you want. Sometimes you're glad you don't get what you want. When I was 20, I met a woman named Janice. I worked with her, and I did not want to marry Janice, but God used her in my uh, life as a wisdom bringer of the kind of woman I actually did want to marry. Made me question, am I the kind of man that that kind of woman would say yes to? It, uh, and then the year after that, when I was 21, I met a woman named Carmen, and uh, I don't know if she got what she wanted. I did, eventually. <laughs> and 30 years later, 30 years later, it's still pretty darn good. But we don't always get what we want. And I'm sure all those are fine women today, but I'm glad we don't always get what we want. Because we don't always know what we need, right? And we don't know what's best until after we don't get what we want, and then sometimes we're thankful. It's often good not to get what we want. And we all have stories like that, things we wanted, and then we look back, we didn't get it, and we're disappointed. We look back, we're like, oh, I'm actually kind of glad that didn't happen. Or sometimes we do get what we want, and then afterwards we realize, I got what I wanted, but that wasn't the best thing. Sometimes we don't always get what we want. Even that great theologian of the 20th century, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones, Pointed to this wisdom where he fa they famously say, you can't always get what you want. But sometimes, if you try real hard, you may find you get what you need, right? Uh, in a moment, we're going to see it's actually much better news than that. Jesus is not a Savior we want at first, however. 
He is the Savior we need. And then we say, oh, he's the one I want. Isaiah 9 is probably one of the most well-known or maybe the most well-known Old Testament prophecy of the coming of Jesus, 700-plus years before Jesus comes on the scene, given to a people who were in deep spiritual darkness because of their resilient resistance to follow the Lord. There's an invitation in Isaiah 2 where Isaiah says, Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And the people, almost in unison by their behavior and their worship, say, No, thank you. We're not going to walk in the light of the Lord. And what happens is this descending darkness on the people of God, and they're turning away from God and his protection that eventually manifests itself is in the Assyrians rushing down from the north and destroying everything. That's the context into which this prophecy is given. Those who are in deep darkness, and we, we share that darkness in our own sin. So it says in verse 2, the people who walked in deep in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. In Matthew 4, when Jesus comes on the scene, Matthew says, oh, this is the fulfillment of that. The light is coming into darkness, and it continues. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. This is, a, these are, this is past tense language. Sometimes we like to give you these uh, little phrases that make you sound smart or really strange, right? You can drop in your Christmas party this afternoon, drop the phrase, the prophetic perfect. That's a literary device happening here. It's when a prophet speaks of something in the future with such certainty that he speaks about it as a past tense happened reality already. It's called the prophetic perfect. Uh, So it's it's like if you have a a friend, you say, hey, can you do something for me? Robbie Page says this all the time. Robbie, can you do something for me? He's like, done. Before he does it. What's that mean? It means he's so certain and willing to help that you can count it as already completed even though it hasn't been begun, begun yet. He's speaking in a prophetic perfect Can you help me with this? Done. That's what the prophets are doing right here. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. So what he's saying here is because of what I'm about to tell you, there is a massive increase in the nation, the people of God, and a massive increase in the joy. And it's so certain because of what I'm about to say that we can speak about it as if it's already in the past tense. There's a certainty that's happening. What is also promised is that there will come a day where the people of God no longer have to fear lack and have to be at war just to survive. Look at verse 4. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. What this is saying is, look guys, you're used to being at war all the time and defending yourself. And after a battle, the bodies are strewn on the battlefield and resources are thin. So they would go through the battlefield and like, can we use this garment? Can we use these boots off this dead soldier? And they would pick them up, clean it up, and use it for the next battle. And what this is saying is because of what I'm about to say, there will come a day when peace will descend and you don't have to fight anymore. You can take all that bloody, nasty stuff and just burn it. The war is over. Peace has come. Why all of this? Why all of this prophetic perfect? Here's the money verse, verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, 
and the government, now that's not the government of a country, but the kingdom of God, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The reason that they can rest from this warfare is not because another great military leader will arise, not, uh, maybe another one like Gideon, who's hinted at in verse 4 at the Battle of Midian. It's not that another great military warrior will come. No, instead, it is a child. And undoubtedly, the people would say, wait, a child? A, a, a kid? Yes, a child. A son will be given to the people. And even when Jesus did come, what they said was, like, was we want a military leader. And the Lord effectively says, I know what you want. What you need is a child who will be and do something specific. And so let's just treat this as sort of a Christmas invitation to see Jesus through these four titles here. And then we'll wrap it up and go home. First title, Wonderful Counselor. Now, not a counselor like a mental health counselor, as thankful as I am for mental health counselors, but one who brings comfort through profound wisdom, which also counselors do, like that, right? Uh, but this is a counselor like a king's counselor, like gives wisdom into strategic situations in our life. Are you suffering? Are we suffering from foolishness that we've done, that we keep doing over and over? What we need is a wonderful counselor, one who will give us wisdom. Do we not know where to go or what to do? Are we uncertain about the future or even our own internal state? What we need is a wonderful counselor, which is, and I'm just breezing by these, right? one time preached a sermon series on each of these names, okay? Uh, This is what Christ offers himself to be, a wonderful wisdom bringer into our life. Uh, and, And that is relational wisdom that has worked out walking with him over time because he is the wonderful counselor. He doesn't like drop wonderful counsel in our life like a download. Shh, oh, now I'm wise. It is, it is relational wisdom because he is the wonderful counselor. We walk with him. It takes time and we listen to him and we talk to him and we listen again and we do this in community. Our impatience disinclines us to receive Jesus as this type of wonderful counselor because it brings us to the point where we say, you know, Jesus, it's taking so long. I don't know what to do. And then Jesus says, aha, walk with me a little farther. We don't like it. We don't want that initially. That is exactly what we need. Once we embrace him in that, we say, oh, this actually is what I want. I don't, I don't want a download of information. I need relational wisdom. It's what Jesus offers. Perhaps we've been here struggling with something for a long time, and we have never or rarely or infrequently just gone to Jesus with it. Guys, he says, I come to be a wonderful counselor. Mighty God. Literally, you could call this warrior God. It's a great Hebrew phrase, El Gabor. The fighter God, the warrior God who fights for his people or fights on our behalf. 
doing for them, doing for us what we could not and cannot do for ourselves. Uh, First, fighting against our own sin, death, and the devil for us at the cross. But And though Jesus does make us strong, it's not like he just gives us a download of power so we can go out and be heroic in our own lives. That's not the kind of mighty God he is. He continues to fight for us on a daily basis, and we join him in that fight, but only through dependence and trust and walking with him and humility and patience. That's how he fights for us on a daily basis. Now, our self-sufficiency makes us disinclined to receive Jesus as this type of mighty God. If we could fight on our own, he w- we would not have a Christmas day. He comes and takes on flesh because we are in co- the strongest, most disciplined, most loving, most holy person here is completely incompetent apart from Christ to fight on our own against our own sin and for our own life. We needed one who would fight for us, and God says that is exactly what I've come to be and do, a mighty God, one who fights for my people. Everlasting Father. This isn't a Trinitarian confusion where Jesus somehow becomes the Father. This is a relational phrase, kind of meaning his paternal-like care for his people, his fatherly-like care, his protection of and provision for his people even though it's sometimes through storms and distress in life. The type of things he himself has faced and knows how to take us through. Now, our own desire for comfort disinclines us to see Jesus as an everlasting father like that because we want, uh, we want fatherly protection that protects us from problems, not in and through them. We don't want that until we actually go through something deep and dark and difficult with him. And on the other side of that, we have this deepened confidence that, you know what? He can take me through anything. He's an everlasting father that sees me not, that that protects me not just from problems, but in them and through them. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. We saw it last night in the angel's announcement. Peace on earth. Shalom. It's the Hebrew concept of wholeness, of tranquility, peace, of prosperity. Now, we love the idea of wholeness, peace, tranquility, prosperity. I love it, but in part, I want to control it. I want it to be in my possession so I can use it as I want and when I want um, this isn't the kind of prince of peace we get. He, in some ways, he's not a prince who gives peace as it's like, like a commodity. He just drops in our life, another download. Now I have peace. Um, no. What we get is one who is the prince of peace. And we get that in relationship, in union with this one. Now, my independence disinclines me to receive Jesus as this type of Prince of Peace. And I think we're mostly disinclined for that until we see 
That if that peace, if that wholeness, if that shalom, if that tranquility, if that prosperity is in our own hand and dependent on us holding on to it, it is always completely threatened by anything that happens to be stronger than us. If that tranquility, peace, wholeness, shalom is in the hand of Jesus, it is never threatened. That's the kind of prince of peace he is. He holds it secure. This is what is on offer. This is what is highlighted on this Christmas morning in these titles of Jesus. This is what he offers, and not just a little bit. He's remarkably generous. How generous? Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. Increase, increase, increase. The picture there, Ben mentioned it in, in, in the opening, like this peace of Christ going throughout the world. We believe that it increases and increases and increases. Now, my understanding is it increases, maybe even ever so slowly, but it's like a dimmer light that increases, and then you can just turn the thing on when Christ returns. This is all this light. This government is completely increased everywhere. But right now, we see the increase of it from this prophecy and through the manger in Bethlehem and through the cross at Calvary and throughout this room. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He is not willing to give you a little bit. He is willing and demanding to give us everything. There will be no end to the increase of his government in this earth eventually, And if you're in Christ, in your life eventually, in my life eventually. Why would we have confidence of this? Just look around this room. You are already the increase of his government. You're just a little, 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 little tiny dot in the sea of the followers of Jesus in this world now. This is the, it's, you are living proof that there is no end to his government or of peace in your life. How do we know it will continue, though? Now, we might say, well, you know, it's rational to think that it's increased so far, so it will increase in the future. And I want to say that it's completely rational. But that's not the best reason given in this passage. How do we know? What is our certainty that this peace of Christ, this what's on offer from Jesus, will increase in our life forever and in this world fully? Right? Again, prophet Mick Jagger said you can't always get what you want, but if you try real hard, sometimes you might find you get what you need. And I would say, Mick, you've got the car pointed in the right direction, right? That's right but there's no engine in it. Sometimes if you try real hard, you get what you need. Oh, there's, guys, there's much better news in this passage. Look at that last phrase in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. The zeal, the passionate, burning, zealous love of God for his own people will accomplish this. It's the same love that accomplished this amazing incarnation of Christ 
becoming truly human of what we celebrate today. It's his zeal that will accomplish it, not Roger's zeal, not your zeal. My goodness, if, if it was my zeal in my life that would accomplish his ongoing peace in my life, I should quit now. But it's his zeal that will accomplish this. He is going to do it himself, he says. We've already got a little hint of this in verse 6. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, I want to give you a visual picture of this. I need a, a volunteer. Brennan Sutherland is going to come up. Come on, everybody. All right. All right. Okay, so Brennan is the kingdom of God. He is the ongoing peace in this world representative uh, as displayed in the, in the title, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. How does, and I'm Jesus, right? How does, how does this happen? Here's the picture he wants you to see, right? Right, don't squirm. Just stay there. I got you. I got you. I'm not going to drop you. Right? It's on his shoulder. It's on his shoulder. I've got to complete it. So Brennan is completely suspended. Thank you, buddy. He's completely suspended. I've got all of his weight on me. It's not up to him. It's up to me. Thanks, bud. This is what Jesus is inviting us to see when he says, the government is on my shoulder. How does he do this? This same Jesus of Isaiah 9, guys, is the same suffering servant who is in Isaiah 53. And this same one who has the government on his shoulder in Isaiah 9 has something else on his shoulders in Isaiah 53. Can I read it to you? What is he carrying in Isaiah 53? How is he carrying this unstoppable, expanding kingdom of God? Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What is on his shoulder in Isaiah 53? Your sin and mine forever and ever and ever. And that is the hope we have. That that zeal, that burning, passionate love of God, in that he took on our sin on himself. What is left for us to carry? Only the joy of words like, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, for you and for me. We're frail. We forget this all the time. One of the ways... We speak to our own conscience and our own imaginations and our own soul and our own heart in the New City community as week by week we come to the communion table. We come to the table and what is represented and presented to us here is Jesus taking our sin and our death on his shoulder. So that all we have left to bear is the joy of his titles in our life. If he has taken your sin on his shoulder, if you are in Christ by faith, we invite you to come to the communion table. Um, I'm going to pray. I'm going to invite you to come. The way we'll do this is um, um, we'll, 
we'll just have two stations again. We'll just go to the back. We'll just approach on the right. It's like you drive. Approach, stay on the right, right? To the right, grab the bread and the cup, come back to your seat, and we will partake together, okay? Let me pray. Then I invite you to get your elements and come back to your seats. In that whirlwind of titles, Lord, I, there's a, those are the trailheads to years and decades and centuries of meditation and, and celebration and joy. I pray this day, this Christmas day, and this Christmas week, the reality of you being our wonderful counselor, mighty God, fatherly caregiver, and prince of peace would be made fresh to us in the gospel.